Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I am here with your, uh, I don't know, at this point he's like the, the best favorite certified co-host, um, Nathan. How you doing Nathan? I'm doing well. I, I think I should be getting some extra points now because I, I hearted our first YouTube comment. So I should be very popular with the audience members these days. So hopefully, hopefully it will be data driven at some point that I am in fact the top voted co-host on this show. Maybe we just need a common war. We need people to come in and say who's their favorite co-host. Uh, while, while you mentioned that though, thank you gentlemen physicist for like leaving that wholesome comment. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I'm very happy you're enjoying the show. That's right, and I'm, I'm actually trolling because you you can't tell who liked it. It's just the account, so it's just it's just the dude better dev show likes that comment, which uh, we do. That's true. It was our first non-spam comment, which that's excellent, very exciting. That's a win. I I definitely count that as a win because yeah, we've had to mark some as spam on Insta. You can just add a blocked keyword. Comment won't even show up. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so many ads for random spammy websites just showing up in the comment section. But fortunately, and YouTube. It's always a records label. Yeah, I guess they just found a way to sneak through the algorithm or something. But oh well, they're cleared out now, and there's just a gentleman physicist just chilling. Yeah. How was your week? Oh man. Um... It's, it was an interesting week because I was able to go out on hike in my region, which is pretty cool because it was sunny and pretty. Um, it sucked because I somehow injured my right wrist and it hurts so much. And being a software developer who likes to video game, um, I like my wrist and the usage of my hand, especially if I'm going to the gym. So. Um, it's been very painful and it has not, I don't know, it's, it's healing pretty slowly. And it's like one of those frustrating human body traits that I hate. When it's like, hey, I can make a fully formed human being in like nine months. And then I'm like, cool, how long is my wrist going to take? It'll be like five years and it'll never be the same again. So just things like that. Besides that, um, I've really just had a frustrating week. I don't think there's any cool stuff that happened in the last week that I can think of. Um, so another annoying thing was Virgin Mobile. <laughs> this is a opposite sponsorship for them. Uh, get your loyalty department better because two deals that they promised me on the phone and were very descriptive about didn't actually exist after the phone was hung up. Yeah, so, ex so explain this to the people listening again. You called, you got a deal that was not applied, and you called again and once again got a different deal that was not applied. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. First time I called, they said, hey, you can either have um, 3 gigs of data for $40 a month or 13 gigs of data for $45 a month. So I said, sign me up for 45 Because apparently for the 45 it was 3 gigs, but I was getting the... 10 as bonus, or if I reject the 10 gig as bonus, then I get $5 off my monthly bill. So it was either or. Um, so I went for the extra bonus. Turns out I only got the three gigs and there was no bonus data, so I called back and they said, oh, if you pay 50, we can give you five, um, five gigs 
but the five dollar minimum like minus promotion still works so you only have to pay 45 dollars a month and we give you five gigs and i was like cool sign me up and then i go and check my account and i'm getting charged 50 dollars for the five gigs so i just i'm, the, I'm just done with them at this point uh i really liked them i've been a long-term customer but they're getting really annoying and on topic of normal tech stuff, which is what this podcast is for mostly, loosely, um, Power BI. I've been getting exposed to it for the last few months. I've been learning its capabilities. I sort of get why business people, higher level folks like it because it does give a really good customizability of visualizing data. However, the way it collects data is not always the most efficient or even good. Uh, worst case is the Elasticsearch that I've seen so far. If you are pulling data from Elasticsearch, it somehow does massive queries, stores them in its format, and then displays the data. And that transformation can take forever. We have this data set, which isn't very huge. It's only a couple of gigs, and it times out constantly because there's too many rows or some other issue that we don't control because it won't let us parameterize anything. Mm. It just says, here's the Elasticsearch cluster, let me get the data, and here's your report. So so yeah, so I've been looking at sort of creating some sort of intermediary database um, so that Power BI reads from it, it reads from Elasticsearch, and then Power BI is happy because it'll be some sort of Azure compatible SQL database. Um, yeah, so I guess that's one sort of cool thing, if I can build this service successfully enough. Um, but it still won't be real-time, right? Or I have to figure out some way of inserting into it real-time so it, mat it matches up. But I'm essentially losing all functionality of a NoSQL data management store because now I have to SQLize my unmanaged data so that Power BI can read it. Is Elasticsearch your primary storage Place for that data or is it being replicated yes. from some oh, okay yeah so I, I i may have to just do like a mirrored approach on logstash where it just sends a bunch of data to elasticsearch and the same data to sql mm -hmm. database it's just annoying because yeah everything is in elasticsearch and now we have to figure out some way of duplicating the data which i guess doesn't matter because the company i work for has a bunch of money so. <laughs> yeah at some point you can just throw budget at space and you'll get all the space you need that's what i've learned about scaling there is no such thing as i don't know limits when it comes to scaling when it when it's cloud infrastructure you're just poor <laughs> if you don't if you just would have more money you could have a higher highly scalable infrastructure yeah this this is not a scalable solution ah you just don't have a big enough budget <laughs> Exactly, yeah. What do you mean I can't post this simple Hello World app on my, I don't know, 64 gig M5X large, 4X large or whatever instance? It should run. And it's going to run. It runs on my local workstation, which has 64 gigs of RAM. It should work in the cloud as well. I don't need to make it better. But sometimes you do. Exactly. So how was your week? So, Hopefully be a lot better than mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I guess I'll start just to keep the trend rolling. I'll start with my Ante shout out and then go to the good stuff. So this one, this is an oldie but a goodie. I just, 
I was reminded of how much I disliked this because I hadn't had to work with it in a long time. I actually hadn't written any JavaScript or TypeScript in a few months and I was loving it, but I had to go into an older part of our code base and work with setting up a new or making a change to the Redux store in a class-based React component. I just, I know that Redux is not a complicated mental model. Like conceptually, it's very easy. Even using the use reducer hooks, very simple. I understand how reducers work. I understand dispatching actions. It all makes sense. But as soon as I have to link up all the boilerplate, I just get so annoyed. And even, even as I'm doing it, I'm like, just the fact that I have to touch, especially with TypeScript, you've got type files associated with it as well. I'm touching like 15 files to add one item to our Redux store so that I can pull it in one place. And I'm just like, I don't have, like, I don't have enough experience with something like the view equivalent that's more, speci uh, more specified or something to say whether or not I agree that it's better. But I do believe that the general, the, the, the way that Redux was built was to be super general. So it didn't know it was in a React project. And it just means there's a lot more boilerplate that goes into it. And I, I just want to give an anti shout out to that. It's much better now with the way that hooks have been added because you can use a lot of um, one line things to just connect, like set up selectors and dispatch actions to get your dispatch with a, a use dispatch hook. Those are really nice. But yeah, working with this older class-based component, I was like, oh, this brings back, it's basically like I was just transported back two years to my deepest frustrations with first getting a handle on the, the mental model for Redux. So anti-shout out to that. But good stuff, um, unrelated to tech, shout out to deadlifts. I took, de I took with the winter off from doing any deadlifts and I have started doing them again the last few weeks. And so I get some this morning. And I just love deadlifts. It'd been so long since I'd done them consistently and uh, they're feeling good. It's fun to get gradually be better at deadlifts again. Um, whenever I don't train them for a long time, I lose quite a bit of strength and then it comes back quickly. So that's always fun. And it's just nice getting better session after session. Um, this is also unrelated to tech, but I noticed earlier this week that I, so one of the problems I have to deal with from working from home is that my apartment gets really hot during the summer because I have these basically floor to ceiling windows and I have to keep the blinds closed or the, yeah, I guess they're blinds pulled down so that it, I don't just bake in the sun all day, but that makes it really dark in my apartment. But I found out that one of the sets of lights, cause there's a bunch on my ceiling. One of them looks, it's, they're like really white and it looks a lot like sunlight. So if I leave the blind open a little bit to get some sunlight on the ground and then turn on those specific lights, it kind of feels like the room's full of sunlight because it's the same sort of color, but it's actually not, which means that I get to stay cool or at least cooler, but not feel like I'm also ready to take a nap. So that's been great for working from home because I do deal with that for multiple hours a day. And uh, that's been a pleasant adjustment. Uh, and finally, uh, just the expression getting down to brass tacks. I just think it's hilarious. And I don't say it often enough but somebody said it on a podcast I was listening to today and I went, I'm going to write that down and mention it in the cool, frustrating, interesting part of the show. So just shout out to that expression. Underrated. Would you also like to use that word you really enjoyed with me on the chat last week? 
Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist. Yes. I was yeah. I was running through the words I like, and I was like, it wasn't epitome, it wasn't uh, it wasn't precipice, it must have been Zeitgeist. So um, yeah, I guess I can add that as just a, a shout out to a good word, which is Zeitgeist. Gian learned a new word, so he's getting better and better at English day by day. That's true. Now I can totally have a normal conversation with zeitgeist <laughs> yeah exactly everybody was or maybe that's the pattern i need to break i need to break the zeitgeist of conversations with the word zeitgeist maybe it would just really shift shift how things are going in that conversation people reconsider what they previously believed that's true they thought this guy's do better yeah they thought this guy's esl there's no way he knows the word zeitgeist and then you change their mind so epitome, apparently you, you skipped over that really quickly. Yeah. That's also a word you really like. Uh, I Well, it was, this is dumb. This is making me sound super nerdy, but it was my mom's favorite word when I was in high school. And so she taught us, she used to do a word of the day. And so epitome still comes up in my mind as like, if I think of good words, I think of my mom's favorite word, which was epitome. And in high school, my favorite word was precipice. And... My English teacher, she had a favorite word too. It was in Macbeth. I don't remember off the top of my head right now what it is, but there's a handful of those words that I always think of as you know, good words or favorite words. Oh, uh, I well, remember usurper. Usurper. Yes, because there's something like here lies the usurper's uh, head or something like that in Macbeth. And she's like, this is my favorite word. And I remember that however many years later. Nice. Yeah. So there you go, everyone. Nathan's a giant nerd. <laughs> if you couldn't tell from being on a dev show, talking about Rocket League on said dev show, and now talking about English words. Yeah. Yeah. But somehow still the favorite co-host. So, yeah, well, yeah, these, these things happen. These things do happen. <laughs> but that's, that's really cool. And then, like, that, that was somehow still like extremely relevant because you need good words to have good documentation skills. This guy, look at this, 20 <laughs> episodes in, he's so good. Oh, I try, I try. So I, I have, uh, do better. I have all these topics listed. Do you have some of your own as well? Cause I'd like to hear one of yours first. Cause I shared mine. Okay. That's true. Well, the, the way you have them are more, topic-based, mm -hmm. the way I have them are sort of category-based. Okay. So I've sort of divided them into documentation of code, documentation of the code base, such as README and everything, uh, internal documentation, Jira, Atlassian, all that, and then architecture and diagrams for the state of how applications work. So what I'm thinking we should do is, since yours are more use case-based, we should go over that, and then depending on where I can find stuff in my categories, we plug that in. Sure. And hopefully this will be a really well-documented conversation. <laughs> the show notes will not be any better than normal. I'm going to say that. No, right it'll just be something like the guys talk about documentation. That's right. Yeah. That's the extent <laughs> of my effort up to this point. Uh, <laughs> so... Again, I'll kick it off with an anti-shout-out of my favorite company to complain about, which is Atlassian. So they did this to me. I was trying to use, they, I think they published something called Atlas, Atlas Kit or something. It's like a UI library. And I could be wrong, 
but I could not get this to work. So I, I was, I had pulled the latest version of Atlas Kit, and it was version two, and I went for the documentation. Documentation had been removed because they were going to be releasing version three. Version three, not yet out. So couldn't, couldn't find out anything about how to use this. I'm basing it kind of on version three, but that was completely incompatible. They changed the pattern entirely because they'd moved from however they were doing it to hooks and using this used theme uh, context plugin or context hook. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. So after messing with that for a while, I eventually just used something else and was reminded of how much I despise working with Atlassian stuff. But just a general rule, if you're going to uh, deprecate a library, maybe keep the documentation up uh, because people still want it because they still use it. That would be smart. And I'm trying to like prune through the source code on GitLab, which is, or Bitbucket, sorry, which is terrible. And that's another thing that Atlassian makes. So they're just my favorite, uh, favorite punching bag because I have to work with them a bunch and everything I use with them is always a confusing nightmare. But outside of that, actual topics, oh, my phone says I've tried the gig in too many times. So there we go. Use the actual mm -hmm. code. Um, know your audience. That's the first one that I have. And so what I'm thinking with that is know if you are writing to developers, if you're documenting for more of the like uh, general explanation of what your service does or library does. So an example would be anything that has a website. I guess if you go to like, I guess this is still kind of targeted at developers, but if you're going to like the Redux, because I just mentioned it, Redux website, and it's this big website that just shows you like generally, this is what this thing is meant to do. And then if you go to a separate area, it's way more specific. So you don't show up to, you know, whatever library dot dot org and then see here's some code examples of how to get started unless their benefit proposition is it's really easy to get started here's the three lines hello world and you get started with that most of the time it's generally our mission is to accomplish this with this product SaaS offering whatever it is and this is why you want to use it and then separately go to your documentation and likewise you don't need to sell them on why they should use it if you're in the code-based documentation where you have code samples. So that's initial baseline. Know who you're writing for and why you're writing it. Oh, also internal. If you're writing like internal documentation for something, you can say references to things that only someone internally would know versus if it's public, you can't really do that. So if you have other internal services that are maybe named something internally, it's good to know that this is for people in the company to find these other things that are also within the company versus publicly available APIs and those sorts of things. If you're documenting those, make sure it's all only things that the public is able to get to, otherwise they'll be very confused. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely been on like certain really not well-maintained projects where it'll have like a Jira link or something mm -hmm. and you click on it and you can't access it because you don't work there. That's a great example. Yeah, that sort of thing where if you don't work there, you can't see this. So yeah, don't put that in public documentation. Yeah, but but yeah, really excellent point on dividing up the documentation based on who will be accessing or reading it. Um, so 
the way I generally see it is like the code, whatever, however you document or write things there are targeted purely at the developers who will be working in it. If you have a readme, it describes what the code base or whatever you're looking at does overall. And then if you want to know how to do development against it, you'll generally have like a separate how to contribute site or this is how to run it. And then your business information goes into document or applications that are used by business. So you'll use like Confluence or something. I'm very, we're just gonna stick in the Atlassian stack because and a shout out, but that's also somehow the only stack every big company somehow uses or medium companies at this point too. Mm -hmm. Everybody There's uses Asana. it so they can get away with it. They can get away with being exactly. slow and they up push updates that make their product more confusing and worse. They can get away with it because everybody's already in, in, baked in. But yes, yep. Confluence. I'm sure everybody has had that experience where they have Jira open and they randomly press a key on the keyboard and something something just happened you were not expecting it to be you would never but it's all baked in shortcuts where it's not like you have to hold control and some key you just press a key and something will happen and you know their target audience are people who generally work with their mouse and not keyboard shortcuts unless they really have to <laughs> so <laughs> it's like vim but for project managers and I know you have a you have a other take on it, and in this case, I'll say Vim is better in some extent, yes. but this is this is still just like bad. Um, but yes, everybody uses it, and once you get used to the ecosphere, it's all works together with each other. So, Confluence have your higher level diagrams, higher level business use cases, user stories, requirements in there, and then Jira you use for actual tasks and stories and work that needs to be executed as opposed to planning and if you are one of those developers i'm gonna like mention my massive pet peeve of just having information in the title and not adding a description to the ticket um please don't be that person uh look in the mirror maybe like talk to yourself switch out who you are because one of the things my earlier mentor said that stuck with me forever was too much information is never a bad thing. You will not be disappointed or sad about the fact that, oh no, my Jira ticket also has this extra information about the task I'm working on. No, but other way, you look back at some ticket three months like later because you did some plugin update or something and somebody else needs to do it and you didn't document anything and now they're sad and they're coming after you, and now you're sad. And everybody else is sad, so why would you do something like that? So just just be better, just do better, and you know, write a description on your tickets and add comments to your Jira tickets. So now that we're going down this path a little bit, it's making me realize how much of my day is spent doing things that can be classified as documentation, because I didn't consider, I was thinking docs as documentation, but no, like, our general process for something I'm currently working on, like I'm currently the primary person working on this one epic. And this epic, which is just a collection of tasks for anyone who's not familiar with that term, uh, it starts with a Confluence doc that we wrote as a team to understand the blockers, the requirements, what the story looks like end to end, what the feature will eventually become. 
We then make a Jira epic based on that and started throwing tickets into it. And we had to update all those tickets to say what those tickets are gonna do, how they block one another, um, if there's anything that can be parallelized, those sorts of things. So there's a bunch of descriptions in those tickets as well. Then as I do that work, as I pass it from the, across the Jira board from me into the QA side, I make sure I go in and add notes for QA. For like, you know, if I added feature flags, these are what the feature flags are. This is how you use them. This is what they're meant to do. Uh, if you haven't made any changes, for example, everything I'm doing right now is backwards compatible. Like if you haven't made any changes to these feature flags, nothing should change. If you see changes that's not normal, let me know. Like these sorts of things go into the ticket and that can be document, considered documentation. And then when, I, when I'm working on those changes, the code I push up, I open all of my PRs with a big description of here's a link to the ticket, here's what the general idea is of what the changes are that I made, here are the changes themselves listed sort of in English, here are any notes for outstanding work, and then I'll, if it's something that was big or that I think I might get blocked on for big, it's like notes from my future self. So it's like cleanup. If we're removing these feature flags in the future, these are the lines to look at, it shouldn't be used anywhere else. These kinds of things are, again, all documentation. And that's still not the end of it because when those features get released, I'm the release manager for my team. So I write a release doc. So then you go into the release doc and it's like, these are the services we're releasing at this version. Uh, it was deployed to these environments at this time. We're this person's in charge of the deploy. Use some JQL to pull all the different types of tickets in that are related to that release so they can see it in the Confluence doc. And then when QA signs off, they get to check a box and all these different steps, you've got the box checking. And one more thing I did today that was related to documentation was our current Elasticsearch best practices, which will be sort of a living document as we learn more about Elasticsearch. But as I mentioned a couple episodes recently, I've been doing a lot of that. So I was asked by the team, just write down what we think we know right now as like what we're, our good decisions are. And that's just a general long living document that lives sort of alongside everything I'm working on. So most of my day today was just spent doing documentation. I didn't even think of it that way until this conversation. Yeah, and see that the, the more you go up in the chain of development, the more documentation you have to do. It's not the golden world you had, you had as a junior developer where all you could do is just sit at your computer, execute those set JIRAs that were assigned to you. Um, I'd much yeah, rather write, write documentation than manage people though, at least at this point. So I'm still trying to stay in that, that dev who writes documentation versus dev that slowly becomes a manager of people. Cause I don't, I don't think that's the move at this point. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> as with the, all the love in the world, I think that's a good move. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just keep uh, trying to use English words and not making people yeah. listen. <laughs> But we like we've even talked about this in like previous episodes, right? The the GitLab, like when you open a pull request or anything, add a whole bunch of context so people know what they're talking about. A practice I mentioned that I sometimes do when I open up PRs, I go and review it myself and leave comments wherever I think potential reviewer will look at and have a question mark. And hundred percent every single one of these things count as documentation because you are taking whatever your mental context is at the point and putting in there because I'm not even gonna say a week, in two days, you're probably gonna lose all of it and forget 
what, what you meant or what you wanted to do. So how about this? We had a feature that I built last year. It took three months to get this feature built. It's been running in production since then, but it's turned off. So essentially we have like data being written to two locations and we need to just switch over to that data that's being written. The, the new data is being written so we can remove the old data because it's just not stored the way we want it. And that was a year ago. There's no way I remember exactly what the steps were, but I knew that that was a possibility when I did the original work. So I must have a 800 word like git comment at the beginning of my PR that just says like, once this is all done, these are the steps that we need to take. And this is the current state of everything at the end of this ticket written in English, as opposed to having to prune through the code and be like, this is how I left everything. And so when that gets picked up, cause we're gonna try to pick it up again in the next month or two, when that gets picked up, I'm going to be thanking past me so much for having done that. So even if it's not, even if it's not somebody else that you're worried about forgetting, like just think for yourself how much you'll appreciate having this information for your future self if it's going to be needed, because you probably will need it if you don't leave the company right away. Yes, yeah. I saw some meme about like the, you know, the Drake meme where it's like now nah yeah. and yes. So it was basically something like properly document your code and he's just like going no and it's like leave your company every two years so you don't have to deal with code debt and he's like yes <laughs> oh no <laughs> and maybe that's why the average tech company retention is two years <laughs> yeah mistakes were made just run away from the burning building exactly oh. the only problem is now uh or at least for the last couple of years or whatever that i've seen all the good ides and when you're typing code will have your name on the top because it's just the setting in most programs where you are the author and it's mentioned you by email. So remember that famous quote that I'm sure everybody has heard at some point of document and write your code in such a way that the next person reading it is a psychopath serial killer and they know where you live. <laughs> so half of that is true now. <laughs> and, um, or maybe a quarter of it. I don't know if they are going to be serial killer or not. But you know, make, make sure you, you do all those things because, oh man, it's going to be so useful. There's, I have this loosely written notepad plus plus file that I don't even save because notepad plus plus does it somewhere in a temp directory, but it has all these helper functions that I run on an occasional basis, uh, to like get some Jenkins information or run some random task somewhere. And I count that as part of documentation because I could have written that in the spur and just lost it and then have to Google it and collect it from five different sources again. But now that I have it, once I finish a task that uses those functions, I always comment those on the ticket so that even if I never look at it again, maybe somebody else does, they'll have some, some code or something to help them not replicate the four hours of stack overflow I just spent um, collecting information from. And yeah, and then all those things count as documentation. And like the way I would link them is I link them top to bottom. So at the very bottom is code. The code will have everything in the actual code base. Uh, I won't put much like Jira links or whatever, because that's stupid. It'll just be explaining what the code does. 
but like if I open a pull request from the hierarchy of things people look at, uh, is the pull request will have everything. It'll have the confluence, it'll have the Jira, it'll have the GitHub links. Then the Jira will just have the GitHub links. And then confluence will have the Jira links. And then you can sort of follow the train. If you're more pedantic or like want to do it, just you can link everything everywhere, but just don't, I don't know. Do you have an opinion on this? Like, I generally don't want to see ticket numbers in the code. Um, I prefer them in branch names, if anything, then at least when I do git blame, it'll say branch num name, person who did it, and then from the branch name, I can find the Jira and go get more content. Yeah, so the way that we do it, right, on my current team is, if you prefix the branch name with the ticket number, then it will link to it in Jira automatically. So if you're going from Jira, you can click and it'll show like associated PRs and you can view it from there and go to GitHub. Or you can go the other way because we all have a practice of the first line of every new PR is just a link back to the ticket that it was associated with. Or because it's already in the branch name, or in the title, you'll find just the ticket number and you can go back to Jira and just, you know, even if you have just a link to anyone, just punch in the number you're looking for and it'll pull up. So you can get to it that way. Um, I had something to say about, oh, if you're like I was before I became release manager and you're like, you know what's annoying is the fact that I have to do all this twice because I have to do it for developers in GitHub and then I have to do it all in Jira for business people. It is, this is the one, this, listen, to, listen up Atlassian, because this is the one nice thing I'm gonna say. Having the JQL pull tickets directly into Confluence docs is really convenient and underrated for documenting grouped features. And the fact that you have to do this in GitHub, like describe what you did in the ticket and then have the ticket over in Jira is kind of just a, a necessary evil to make these two worlds talk. And fortunately, there's this thing you can do with your keyboard uh, where you do a copy and then a paste. It, it doesn't take that long. I know you might have to Google it to see how to do it, but it's really, it's really simple once you figure it out. And it'll save you a ton of time retyping the whole thing. So point is, it's actually not that bad. Just put up with the fact that you have to deal with putting stuff in Jira to satisfy business people because somebody down the line is having to manage releases. And if that person is in any position like I am, where we have to verify that the code matches the stuff that we're thinking we're releasing, that person's going to appreciate it if those two things would, they much prefer duplication over a lack of coordination where it's like, what code, would this code exists? What ticket is it for? Or this ticket exists and I can't find code for it. Those things are a nightmare. It's way better to have two. And again, copy paste is not that hard. So um, if you haven't done it, just know that somebody cares and that somebody's me. So please do it. Just, yeah, doesn't matter what company you're at, doesn't matter where you are. That's right. Whenever you copy-paste, Nathan just, like, wakes up and it's like, good on you. Yeah. It's back to sleep. Yeah. Thank you for copying that excellent GitHub opening comment over to a Jira ticket. Somebody there will appreciate it.
Yeah, and like for and if you're using like branch names and Jira tickets and you have some sort of standard formation, you can probably like build little bots and everything that link tickets and tasks to each other. Yeah, yeah. So ours does it automatically. It's some sort of plugin, I imagine, um, but it'll link it from Jira. But one thing you did say, you're listing all these things that are documentation, and I'm curious, are code comments documentation? Hundred percent. Anything that's not being executed by, actually no, I I, I take that loose definition back, um, or half of a definition. Um, <laughs> it was half a, anything, half a thought. <laughs> half a thought. Yeah, I take it back. Um, anything that's providing you context about the work you're doing or things that you're looking at, especially code in the context of software development, is documentation. Anything that doesn't need to be there that's helping you is documentation. Uh, when you write code and you add a little multi-line comment on top of the function describing what it's doing, that's documentation. And please do that because it's so much easier to know what a function is doing. Like, yes, self-documenting code, uh, let's touch on that a little bit, is great. As long as you name your functions properly, they can be verbose, that's what I believe. Like. If they're super long names, I don't care. So long they tell me exactly what they're doing, they can be as verbose and as detailed as they can be because the compiler doesn't care and it'll make things nicer and smoother and whatever it does, um, happy. Um, but on, on like at, there will be a time when your self-documenting code isn't as like self-documenting as you think it is, because you will have to type some complicated loops, you may have to use some library, or you may copy-paste some gist on Stack Overflow that somehow breaks if you change even a little bit value, but seems to work perfectly because of how we copied it. You need a comment there to explain what it's doing. Uh, even little comments between the function describing single line comments if something is changing or there's a flow. Um, super helpful or if you have some sort of team framework for self-documenting code that you work with for example when I write tests uh, I'll have a grouping of initialization variables then I leave a line then a couple of grouping of lines of the test logic that's being executed and then a line space and then it's all a bunch of assert statements grouped together so that when you're grouping through or skimming through the code you can very quickly just be like, okay, initialization is wrong or right, logic is good, uh, assertion logic is good. And then you just move on with your life and, I don't know, you're happy because you didn't waste four hours looking through some code that was not documented properly. Yeah, I think tests are perhaps surprisingly the place I find myself writing the most comments and appreciating comments because Oftentimes it's the tests that are testing something that was that came up as a bug that is the reason it was a bug is because it wasn't anticipated. And so oftentimes if you look at the test itself and it's called like, you know, test underscore underscore user underscore underscore doesn't fail underscore uh, username. And you're like, I don't I don't really know what this test does from that but there was some specific edge case and if it's not it's not always obvious from the test configuration that it's like this is the important thing so oftentimes it's like 
if you have initialized variables for your tests, you have to say something like the fact that this is not assigned or the fact that this is none is necessary for this test. Like basically it would still pass if you change that value, but then it's not testing it anymore. Like those sorts of things are important to note, just like why this is the way it is or what this test is specifically for. Uh, another thing that comes up is less frequently, fortunately, is regular expressions. If, uh, if you don't at least provide some examples of maybe what you're doing, um, what it's supposed to do, then everybody's going to be lost and just hope it works. And they'll have to, they're going to have to go, if they have to change it, they'll have to go to a regex validator at some point. But ideally, they can look at your code and see like, oh, there's a comment that says email validation. And they don't have to guess what that regex is actually supposed to be doing. Um, so that's one. And one other thing I would say is ask yourself when you're writing a comment if you're adding anything that's actually helpful. Like if you were somebody who didn't, wasn't in your brain right now and they just came across this function and you, you put return and then the variable name and above it you put return updated value. You go, did, did, did this function update the value? Because if that's obvious in the line above, you don't need that comment. If it's not obvious, you need to explain how that value got updated and be like, you know, this is, this is an object, uh, mutating object. Like put something there that's more obvious above, not I'm returning an object or a value because we can tell, we know that that's what's going on. So it's, it's only happened maybe once or twice where I've, I've had notes for myself that get up to code review and someone comments just like bad comment. I'm like, well, yeah, fair enough. I'll remove that. Because it ends up just meaning nothing at some point. But it was there, maybe it was for yourself as just like a to-do. But remove that at some point because it's not helpful. And the worst thing about comments is that they, because they don't execute, they can go stale and just be way more confusing than helpful. So if they're describing old code and they weren't updated and they were also useful, now somebody's looking at something that was so obvious it should have been removed that now describes behavior that's not occurring and they're just very confused. So just, just think twice about your comments. And if you're updating code that is commented, look at the comment and see if it needs an update. Yeah, very good example of the, of like the return updated because my favorite example of like bad comments is there'll be some function like return ads and the comment says, this function returns ads. I'm just like, I get it. I can read the English part. I would have liked to know how it creates the ad or returns it or where it fetches it from. And if there's anything I should know about that. Um, because I, I was working in this code base that was acquired from some other company and was Ruby. But you know, already it's going to be bad. <laughs> but there's like two functions there. One of them says, um, get add and then there's this function just beneath it that says really get add oh no <laughs> and you're just like well which one gets the ad and <laughs> now you have to hunt through the code base to find out if one of those are like not used properly because they're not calling each other which would have made things maybe a little bit easier still confusing as heck but you know it just yeah so if you are writing comments because you're like feeling like good comment, like good person, but just, you know, make sure they mean something. Yeah. And another final thing I'll say about that is 
Sometimes it's more useful to describe the use case than what it actually does. So if you have, I, I can think of it with tasks or something. So if we have tasks that'll, uh, that'll be listening for events and then trigger, be like, just give a couple examples of like, this is roughly what it does and we expect it to be used in these cases. In other words, it'll be triggered by events that are, for example, sent from this model being updated. And that way, at least it can point somebody in a direction and be like, I see what this is mentally supposed to be associated with. And that way it makes sense to them whether or not their new use case for this task, for example, is a match for what it's already being used for. So just just one of those like less, less specific things, but to avoid um, or to communicate your context, again, your mental context around why you wrote that that way. Yeah. So, yeah, totally. Let's see. We have knowing your audience. Oh, I just had the note that it's annoying to go through source code. So have good examples, I guess. That's something we can talk about quickly. If you're writing technical documentation, uh, one of the things I really like that people are doing a lot now is they'll have those blocks of code examples that will say like how to do this and it'll have a snippet and then you can choose, you know, node or python or go and it will just flip through all the examples so that you can get an example for whatever project you're working on while also visually showing these are the supported sdks for this integration or whatever and so those things are really nice but one thing i have had on the opposite side of that is we are using an elastic client in our python one of our python services that has remarkably little documentation. Their documentation is essentially a checklist of these are the things we support, and then you go into the source code to find out how you call it. So my process for using this, um, this client has been go to the GitHub page, command F to look for the term I'm searching for to see if it's in the checklist, then look for what I think the file might be named for testing it, pull up the tests and see how the tests call it and which arguments they pass in, and then go do that in my code. And I think I said it was a Python client. This was a Go client, so that's probably why it's not as well documented, just a smaller group of people probably using it. But yeah, this, this Go client for Elasticsearch. And compared to something like uh, using LaunchDarkly, which is what we're using now for feature flags, which has remarkably good documentation. And just going from that to digging through source code to within a month, looking at LaunchDarkly documentation, which is basically like a paragraph of, this is why you need this particular feature that we have, here's the code. And it's like the first step one, make sure you import it, it'll probably be in this sort of file. And then this is how you do this other setup, and then this is where you actually call it. And it's just like, oh, it's laid out so well, it's got actual code snippets and context around it. so. Prevent people from having to do the first part that I mentioned, where you're going through your source, through it, going through the source code to see how it works. Um, likewise, this is unfortunately also happening with the LaunchDarkly client. Their code was out of date in their documentation, so I, I did have to go to source code and see what their call signature had changed to, because their or sorry, what their imports had changed to, because I guess they rearranged some stuff. And I was like, that import doesn't exist, so I gotta go find out what it's actually called now. But 90% of my experience was very positive with their documentation, and I wish more was like that. 
Yeah, I remember having. I I used like PyCharm exclusively for my Python development because command or control click was my friend. Every time I would type something, I'm like, no, I don't think it's working the way it should, and I would just have to get into the actual function definition, see how it works, and there was something about authenticating with the Google. SDK uh, for updating Google Sheets or something, and for whatever reason, being Google, um, those applications do not have very good documentation, um, or maybe I'm just used to a certain kind of integration, and I just don't like using these kind of APIs that whatever they're using, it's just REST calls hidden beneath layers and layers of functions that accept a mixture of different types of parameters um, and yeah it was really confusing because all I could do was just import the library and then wait for or like type the first few words to see whatever my ID suggests as the relevant function name have it show up and then control click through it just to see what everything is in the code and in the beginning I thought I was like really smart uh, to be like, oh my god, yeah, I'm reading source code of a library to figuring all this out. I must be so smart. And then I was like, no, they're just dumb for not including enough documentation wasting my time. So we use, we use PyCharm and WebStorm uh, stuff at, at Telmedic. And I have found that there's a big difference between what these Python libraries include in their source code versus the JavaScript libraries. So I had to find out how the JavaScript library worked the other day, and I clicked on through it, and there was nothing there. It was literally just the, the source code, no comments on anything, no description of what it did. The name was essentially useless. It was just a bunch of underscored variables. And I was like, I, I don't love this, because I just spent a few months exclusively hopping into the Python side, where pretty much any function you hover over, it's just like, here's a doc string that's a paragraph of everything you need to know about this function. And you go to the actual source code and yep, there's that doc string. And then it's got more description of what it does than code. And then you can click through to those other things. And they also say what they do, even if they're internal only functions. And so again, those sorts of things will eventually reach the end user, even if you're not explicitly including them as documentation for public consumers, because someone like me or someone like Yan is gonna be clicking through and being like, how does this work? And if it just says how it works and the code is you know, easy to follow and the documentation makes sense in the code itself, we're gonna appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's almost surprising to me the amount of times I've had to go through a library source code in Python and Java really, um, but the good thing about, I guess, I'll, I'll give the doc string in Python a little shout out where, you know, in, in certain or like in any documentation for if it's an isolated function or like a good enough function on its own, uh, you can write that little doc string with the three arrows and you can just run a test case while in, in the function. So you can just say for a given X value, it'll return Y. And when you run your linter or whatever, it'll actually run those tests in the doc string, which is extremely cool hmm. uh, if you wanted to just give people a demo. And now if I read documentation and I see it, 
I don't even need to bother like going through the whole code if I can see the val sample input and output value. I know it's there. I know they probably have tests running it, so the function must be working right if I that that's what I expect. And so I just don't skim through the function anymore. I'm just like, okay, I know what it's doing. I know the doc string, and it, this is making me happy. And yeah, apparently that is a thing that's missing in a lot of JavaScript functions uh, and libraries. I definitely remember like bothering Nathan being like, okay, uh, I have reached six levels underneath the dunder function on this library <laughs> help because <laughs> i don't know what else to do there's no comments or anything i just keep reaching the subclasses yes and um, again so python was good and even the month or so i spent working with go there's at least in my ide i was using i was using vs code for that and it would throw warnings like not hard errors, but it would put a bunch of warnings everywhere if I didn't have comments uh, above my public functions. And so that was, some of them feel very redundant. Like there's just not much to say about this function. But in general, it was a great reminder to say, consider putting something here to explain the purpose of this. And the fact that it was, I was writing a bunch of commands to do data migration it actually was great to be reminded to put comments in there so that the f next person that comes up doesn't have to look through how this data migration takes place. I can say, generally speaking, above that function, this is what it does. And then if you need to look at it more detailed, you can. So uh, if you have the option, I guess, of configuring linters or your IDE to give you those sorts of warnings, it might be useful because I, I found it useful. Yeah, like shout out to VS Code. like best ID I've used so far for everything except Python. Everybody loves Python VS Code. Learning. It's so good. Uh, and the highlighting, the syntaxes. The, the, Vim, um, the Vim integration, it just works. We're going to brush past that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, like it has, you can, you can pretty much configure anything and it doesn't completely eat up your RAM, which is the greatest thing about it. It's very lightweight. Um, and yeah, just, Choose, choosing a good IDE can make all the difference from like somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, oh, that guy uses VS Code, he must be friendly, to, oh, he's using Vim, let's not talk to him. <laughs> what a nerd. <laughs> he probably likes weird words. Uh, <laughs> this is the epitome of using bad IDEs. And he probably likes uh, lisps and functional programming. Uh, and a blue Calvin, tell your friends. <laughs> I've got two more things. Uh, or I guess three more things, but one of them is just RTFM, which is read the effing manual. So actually read the docs. You know, if if they have docs, go check them out before you spend hours on your own perusing Stack Overflow with the error that you're getting. See if you just missed a step in the documentation. That's a good way to go. Also, I wish I remembered which library this was, but there was a, oh, I think it was Webpack 4, their documentation they have a whole section that is like common errors that you'll see. So in other words, things you misconfigured. We expect, we've, enough people have used this library, we know what people get confused about. And instead of people having to look through issues that were immediately closed, you can just go to their docs and see like, seeing this issue, this is probably what you did wrong. Go to this part of the documentation to see how to do it right. So if you have a, a service that's like that, something that's not, say, just an API, it's something that needs to be highly configured, consider doing that because it could save somebody a lot of time. 
But what I was trying to get to is if there is documentation, go read it. Don't just look over the internet for it. Don't sit there confused and just try to figure it out. Don't bother your, if you're like a junior developer, don't bother your teammates with you haven't read the docs because that's always embarrassing. And they said, did you check the documentation? And if it's right there, easy to find, you just don't feel great. So RTFM. Other than that, oh, come on phone. I need to mention auto-generated docs. So do you use or have you used any auto-generated documentation tools? Nothing besides Swagger. Okay, so that's what, do you, you consider that automatic? I consider that documentation for your API. Yes, so was that Swagger that, does it ingest your code directly? Because the Swagger that docs that I've been writing, you have to write a big YAML file and then it just generates a UI for it. Is there well, a version of Swagger that ingests your code directly? No, well, there is a version of Swagger, at least when I used it in Java, based on the doc strings, it'll generate that. Okay. Yeah, so instead of writing one giant YAML file with everything, you, I'm pretty sure it reads all those doc headers, then generates the YAML file or whatever from it that gets served through the API. I see. There's some, yeah, yeah, there's something, there's some common pattern for JavaScript as well that I never used. Um, you like at params to put the parameters for your function in there. Basically just like somewhat semi-active comments, same sort of idea. So if neither of us have done a tongue with it, I don't need to say too much. And the last thing on my list is interactive docs, which these aren't strictly docs, but they're the interactive docs I'm familiar with, which is Jupyter Notebook. And I came across that the handful of times that I've decided, oh, it's a good idea for me to look into machine learning and then realize it's not for me and then try it again in six months. But every time I go there to look at how to do machine learning stuff, it's always a Jupyter Notebook. And so it'll basically, it looks like a PDF of sorts, but you can actually run the code that's in the code samples inside of the Jupyter Notebook. And it's stateful, so you can essentially just pass, like if you run step one, everything's ready for you to run step two, but in the documentation, if it's written as documentation, you can read what you're about to do, why it's being done that way, run it, see the output, and then move on to the next step. So there are other ways to use Jupyter Notebooks, but that's the way I'm familiar with it. Do you have anything to add yeah. to that? No, and just besides the fact that Jupyter Notebooks are great, I have very limited experience with them, but they make sense to me and they make me happy because it's just, you you do something, you get a bunch of data, you put it into a different pipeline. That does something, it spits out data and state is managed the whole time. So it's just, it's pretty awesome and you know, RAM is cheap, so. <laughs> download more build. RAM. <laughs> yeah, just, just download more RAM.com, exactly. Uh, <laughs> have everything in there. Um, another thing I wanted to sort of mention um, for, yeah, besides Swagger, there's a lot of like other auto-generating code, uh, like readme libraries. There's readthedocs.io, I'm pretty sure they it's mainly targeted just for Python, but a lot of universal libraries, they'll generate their documentation from readthedocs. And the format is pretty simple, you follow certain things and they work out pretty great. For 
anything like especially on the code um, I do recommend or like my favorite thing is make files uh, for like commands because if you are trying to simplify certain parts of the application you may not want to like invite new developers or people who are contributing to do 20 different things um, you can sort of define a make file, test it, make sure it works, and add little comments of this command does this, this command does that. And then if they're curious, they can go read your make file and everything. Um, yeah, and then for internal documentation, I wanted to sort of give a shout out to Google Sites. Because I remember trying to host my own little Wikipedia server to like maintain an internal knowledge repo and everything, and it's a lot of work not enough benefit so if your company doesn't want to pay for confluence and everything because they're small enough or if you maybe want to have your own set of documentation Google Sites has like become so much better since its original inception it used to be just very plain text and everything now there's text images and it's like one of those build your own website things but it's free so it's pretty pretty cool stuff and then for documentation on visual side of things so Draw.io, huge, huge shout out to them because I still use them for building pretty much any kind of architecture I want to build. You drag a whole bunch of shapes and you give them names and you draw arrows and you're like, ta-da, this is how everything works. There's also uh, Miro I've been sort of using now for, it's very open, it's, it's sort of like Envision but not from not for like people who are graphic designers so you can have little boards and you you essentially have a virtual board and you can either draw things on it put sticky notes on it whatever you want and then what's the software we mentioned a couple episodes ago that nathan really loves? sequence diagram sequence diagram that's that's not what the tool was called yeah i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure it's sequence diagram.org that's a very long name. I feel like it was shorter. Right. But okay, I, you know, if you say so. I, yeah, I will find it, and it's probably mm -hmm. going to be from the previous show notes that I'll get it from. But regardless, I'll make sure it's in these ones. And uh, side benefit of getting comfortable with, you said draw.io and Miro? Mm hmm Yeah. Side benefit of getting good with those is if you're going to do any system design interviews, you probably should know how to use those ahead of time because it will save you some awkward trying to figure out how things work moments in your interview because I've had to do that and not being super comfortable with it just make it all the much worse, especially on a trackpad. Mm. At that point, you just like say, okay, can I share my screen? And you just open paint. <laughs> now you're just like aggressively drawing boxes and arrows to each other. Um, but if you don't want to do that, um, yes, please get familiar with those tools. Um, some of them have like weird dragging, but more often than not, just knowing the different ways you describe things, like having a diamond to decide a decision box, having a square for something, database, having a little literal cloud-looking thing for a remote server. Uh, things like those help when you're trying to describe and put that information, because I don't know how much time you want to spend on those things, but I don't like to. Um, so these websites help me quite a bit. Uh, especially with the remote work culture now, because before I could draw them on a whiteboard and just have people take pictures of it, which I can't do anymore. Yep, we use those all three, well, yeah, actually all three of those, I think. I 
think we use Miro as well, but uh, we use something like all of those regularly now that everybody is uh, remote. So they're useful tools. Do you have anything else for documentation or should we call it a day and move on to how we're doing for next week? Yeah, I think that's all I have. If there's anything else, I'll document it for a later episode. Sounds good. I'm, I gotta say, I'm shocked. I expected very little to have to say about this. And this was something I could probably keep talking about it, but it's like at some point, there's not much more to say. It's just like I'm, I'm passionate about it more so than I thought. Because I laughed at this suggestion initially, and now I'm, I'm regretting that initial reaction. Yeah, so thanks, uh, thanks the person. I don't know if you want us to say your name on the episode. You know who you are. Yeah, you know who you are, so person. thank you for the suggestion. That's right. And keep them coming. Yeah, because this was fun. Yeah. So again, how did you do this past week, and how are you going to do better next week? Well, let's see. Last week, I said things I'll do better on was I would do more system design stuff. Did you do that? I would. I am doing great on that. I now, in theory, can design Instagram. Um, yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, <laughs> because I looked up that as a solution, like a problem thing. I drew my own infrastructure and was extremely close to what they were suggesting. I don't think it's the actual Instagram, but the video I was following sort of took a subset of requirements and everything. So, Facebook, I'm coming for you. Better look out, Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then the other one was I would start out the blog post. So I would have put it out, like I did start on it, so I'm doing good on it, but my wrist hurts a lot and I do type less. So I am not able to put it out yet, but by the time this episode is released, it'll probably be live. I hope it is. If not, I'm doing really bad. Mm -hmm. And I was gonna look into adding a subscription thing on our Anchor um, page for people to just pay us for no reason. And I didn't find anything because I think we need to hit a certain level of traffic or something before Anchor lets us. There's a little question mark that says, look into Anchor subscription. And if I click on it, nothing opens. Mm. So either Anchor's just like, haha, too bad, or I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I think it's, it, so, yeah. If, there's a, uh, if there's a limit or a requirement, unlikely we've hit that requirement, so. Hey, I, I don't know, like, to the moon, remember? Yeah, soon. Yeah. But we're still we at the bottom of manifest. The, still at the bottom of that curve. That's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping our curve of growth, like, sort of matches up how, like, COVID cases happened in March back <laughs> last year. So, just exponential great growth. Uh, yeah, and then, then, I don't know, something else. Not that. Because yeah. I don't want it to crash. Yeah, it's crashing pretty hard right now. That's true. Um, whatever. I don't want it to match now. Last year. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and then the things I'm going to do better this week is I have a very heavy work week. So I'm going to take it, late, take it a little lighter. I'm going to get halfway through the Thanks for the Feedback book. Because I've been reading it a little bit slower now. Um, and I want to sort of get through it because I don't want to be late for returning my book. It's like due in like three weeks. And it's, it's a relatively thick book. And 
and I wanted to publish the blog post. So I'm going to do that and have one more big system design that I think I should be able to like know. So I'm going to, next time I'm going to look at Facebook Messenger. Did you already How do I would... Twitter? Because I think you mentioned that as well. I, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't do it as like an individual exercise. I walked through it as I was watching the video. I like it would pose a question of how we would do this, and I like pause it in my mind, like this is how I would probably do it, and then I just play it instead of like doing the whole thing myself first. Uh, but yeah, I can make Twitter now. I can make Instagram. So wow, your next natural step is just Messenger. Yeah, you're basically all of big tech, just in one one brain. Exactly. Uh, I'm gonna call it the I don't know. Like Fang, it'll just be like better Fang. So <laughs> better Fang. <laughs> All right. So. What, what about you? What are you gonna do better on? So I had a bunch of do betters from last week. So I guess I'll just go through those. The things I did better on. Um, as promised, I continued actually having conversations on my dating apps. So I did that. So that's. I don't know how, my goal was to actually like meet with at least one person this month. I don't know how reasonable that is considering the state of the world and how not everybody seems super keen to meet up. And by not everybody, I mean, it seems like nobody I've met yet is keen on that sort of thing, but we'll see. I'm going to keep trying. And but from what I heard, you did awesome on deadlifts and you're talking to girls and the old adage of more plates, more dates should line up that's, that's right. okay so that's fair i'm pretty i'm still pretty early on in the regaining of deadlift strength so i probably just need a few more weeks to build back up and then the dates will be inevitable uh i took the weekend off from the gym so that was great elbows felt real good on monday uh, i re rediscovered the importance of time off so not that i'd forgotten i'd just gotten in this horrible habit of going every day because I was scared they were going to close the gyms. But I think we're safe now that we're in warm weather. I wanted to do something that constitutes, constitutes an active lifestyle, quote unquote. So basically just, I realized that my, I thought I was an active person and then I was like, what do I actually do? It's like, I wake up, go to the gym and then I go for a couple walks throughout the day. Like that's not that active compared to what I was doing where I was climbing and longboarding and biking. So uh, on the weekend, Biked over to Thicus Lake, hiked around with one of our mutual friends, and then biked back. Also went longboarding that morning, and then I went home and slept for like 12 hours, and it was great. So that was great. I wanted to get a haircut, but I wasn't able to yet, so I've just booked one for later this week, because it was all filled up. And another thing that came up that I didn't wasn't planning on doing, but it just happened in my like month of focusing on myself instead of work, uh, sort of thing was I reassessed my breathing, which is going to sound weird to anybody who hasn't done this sort of thing before, but I have over at least the last five to 10 years focused a lot on just breathing better, like diaphragmatic breathing and having good head and neck position. And I don't know what point I noticed it, but I was like, I've stopped doing that. And it was some point over the winter and I was essentially just doing a lot of chest breathing and I was getting like more, uh, more of an achy low back, which I'd never had before. And I realized that the front of my neck was really tight and things just weren't feeling as good. And then I, 
I went, let's start with the easy one, the breathing, because I've been doing that my whole life. And uh, I'll try to fix that. And that just sort of immediately fixed everything. And it may have been because I had built those things on top of the habit of breathing and it just sort of all fell into place. Or it may have caused it, I don't know. But it feels great to be doing a bit more proper breathing. So uh, that was a pleasant surprise. And again, a good reason to just step away from work, uh, focus a little bit, and hopefully that will carry over. But as far as doing better, so I do have some things. I need to actually get a haircut, so it's coming up in a couple days. Looking forward to that. And I want to make some plans to do something fun because it's been very lacking in fun for a year. So I want to do something like that. I don't know what it's going to be. There's limited options. I'm going to try to find something and make plans for it. And then just continue trying to hit platinum once <laughs> for Rocket League because I'm just carrying that over until it happens. Not that I've played a lot of ones. I've just what, what I've been doing lately is just queuing all three game modes at once. So you can just check off if you want to multi-select. So I'm like ones, twos, threes. And it turns out that just a lot of people like twos. So it'll just pick whichever one comes up first. So if I'm playing on the weekends, it's pretty much always threes that comes up first. And if I'm playing in the mornings during the week, it's pretty much always ones. But coming from the last recording, it was the weekend. So it was just a lot of twos and threes. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I'm sure other things will come up. Like I did keep on top of replying to LinkedIn messages and such. So I felt good about that. So if, if you're somebody who's sort of, you know, getting into the whole not taking time off of work or working out kind of things, we have this episode on burnout. Go listen to it because it's very applicable. And I would also like to add diaphragmatic breathing is heavily underrated. Like it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I'm, I'm sure whoever like, I'm sure you've heard it on all sorts of like meditation or yogic or whatever kind of like places and think it may or may not be a scam, but just like, just breathing properly changes so much on how you're feeling and how everything works in your body. It's, it's actually insane. Like I, I find it, it's like one of those life hacks. You do it and you're like, holy crap. Yeah, not even kidding. Like if you have neck pain, yeah. if you get consistent headaches, if you have back pain, if you're stressed, start with that and just try to do it as much as you can consciously until it becomes more or less unconscious, which is what I had until I guess I just had a more anxious winter than I'm used to and it slowly faded. But just fixing that first might do a lot more for you than you expect, which Again, it sounds like it sounds like it's just a lie. It sounds like it's overblown, but it can do quite a bit. And essentially the point is if you're if you can fix that, it might fix a lot of other things. It won't necessarily, but it might. And in my case, it's making things feel a lot better and I feel a bit more like myself, which is a good feeling. Yeah, and there's there's literally no downside to it. That's right. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> you're breathing better. There's... And you have to you have to breathe anyway, so you may as well just try to breathe you a might, bit better. Exactly, you must you might throw a little bit of mindfulness at it, and you know, like I find it's like better like recovery at the gym or anything. Like my my reps are better because I'm like not short breathing between them because I I can have full range of motion and all that blah blah blah. But yes, this is something I could talk about way too long, so we should 
That's true. We yeah. Probably stop if you want to <laughs> listen more about this, go to the Do Better Club website because I'm pretty sure I've written something about it before. Oh. How nice. And that's an applicable. Well, thank you everybody for listening and tuning in. Um, yeah, we'll see you all next week. See you then.